0: Welcome to another episode of the Then and Now Sports Podcast. I'm Nick and that other guy, don't worry about that other guy, he's not here. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, James wanted to focus on some of the things, some of the exciting things we have planned ahead, which is perfectly fine. So in the meantime, I'm going to record this UFC episode. That's right. We're going to talk all things UFC today. And that starts with UFC 250, where we're going to cover the main card there. And then after that, we're going to talk about some of the UFC contract disputes that are going on, which will be very in-depth. So anyway, we're going to start with UFC 250. And as I said, the main card, which starts with Sean O'Malley versus Eddie Wineland. Now, there's a lot to say about Sean O'Malley. So we're going to start with Eddie Wineland. Now, Eddie Wineland, really good fighter in his prime, kind of past his prime now. But as far as a challenge for Sean O'Malley at this point in his career, a stepping stone, this was definitely a worthy opponent for him. And it was a point to prove his worth and to prove if this hype was really deserved and how far can the Sugar Show go. And he did it in spectacular fashion with he did it in spectacular fashion with a walk away ko you always love to see those and i think this finish did wonders for his image and his star status i mean after the fight he said it himself i'm a star i'm a effing i'm the man i'm what everybody everybody's watching tonight and he's not wrong he's not wrong he is a star and it's gonna be exciting to see what's next for him. Now, I mean, there's so many fighters in this Mantomweight division that that would make for exciting fights with Sean O'Malley. And I can't I can't put my finger on who's coming next for him, but I have to imagine that it's gonna be a top ten opponent because they're gonna to want to keep the sugar show rolling. They're gonna to want to push him to the top of the division really quickly so they could capitalize on his success. And I mean I feel like Sean O'Malley's just doing everything right. Especially with his branding, like the rainbow dreads, I love those. His tattoos are sick. And, you know, he, his knockout power is what brings eyes to him, and he's making sure those eyes stay on him, which I can absolutely respect. And also, he has his own podcast, so he's building he's building an identity for himself. He's building that social media presence, and I think it's going to carry him a long way as long as he stays consistent with these results now next we have Neil Magny versus Anthony Rocco Martin in in this um, card of great finishes historic fights you know this this kind of gets lost in the fray I mean this this was just a solid fight between two veterans nothing insane Um, Anthony Rocco Martin builds the momentum early back grappling Tries to control Neil Magny, you know, so he can't use that reach of his, that well-known Neil Magny reach, and I mean, that that's sustainable for the first round. But Neil Magny just had superior cardio and that superior range I just mentioned, and he was basically just able to wear down Anthony Rocco Martin as the fight went on, and he he dominated the last two rounds with 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 ease. So that led to a unanimous, a unanimous decision for Neil Magny. And Neil Magny, winning four of his last five fights, always puts on a good show for the fans. So it's always great to see him get a win. And, you know, he's always going to give someone a good fight. So I wonder who they're going to give him next. I'm not sure. But props to Neil Magny. Now next... We have Rafael Sunsau versus Cody Garbrandt. This was an interesting fight I was keeping my eye on um, going into this card. Um, you know, both fighters coming off of losing streaks. Um, most recently, Sunsau losing to um, Corey Sandhagen, who was also on this card, and Cody Garbrandt um, getting knocked out in his um, last bout. And then for that, the two losses to DJ Dillashaw that he was, he was in, but he just got too reckless and ended up losing his um, championship belt. So this this was interesting going in for me. And it was a back and forth fight for those two rounds. But I also had Cody Garbrandt winning regardless, but it, it didn't matter because he, 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 he like Sean O'Malley. Landed a vicious knockout at the bell of round two and you know like i thought for the whole fight cody garbrandt was pretty composed he was he was doing a good job of of showing his um his stand-up um, pedigree which we know he which we know he has from previous bouts but his recklessness has gotten him in trouble in the past and in in this case it actually helped him out it got him the um it sealed the win for him. So, you know, it this is a dangerous thing to say when it comes to MMA because it's so unpredictable. But I always had a feeling Cody Garbrandt was going to make some sort of resurgence because just of the level of talent he has, he might be the best stand-up fighter in the division, to be honest. And if he can just keep that recklessness in check or just monitor it enough to, like... Where it doesn't damage his like, you know, he his, his course through the fight. Like I think he could easily get back into that title contention conversation, and hopefully he stays consistent because a bantamweight division with Cody Garbrandt at his best is gonna be is gonna make it even more entertaining than it is now, which is crazy. To, which is crazy to say. Um. Um. Next we have another bantamweight bout, and that is. Aljamain Sterling versus Corey Sandhagen. And now, Aljamain at this point, Aljamain Sterling is a well established um fighter in this division. He has proven his worth. He has proven his place in this division. And he is a title contender. And and off of this fight, um, like he, he proved it again. Now on the other side, um Corey Sandhagen, he's rising, he's coming off wins off of Raphael Sunsau and John Lindeker. And I thought this fight was going to be a lot more exciting than it was. Not to say that that a rear naked choke isn't exciting, but, you know, like, it it ended quickly. I, like, I was surprised that the fight didn't last, like, long, but if you told me if the fight played out like this, I wouldn't be surprised with the result, because Aljamain Sterling, like, wrestling is his bread and butter, that's his background, and he is the superior wrestler in this fight, and he was able to get a hold of Sandhagen early. Um, took him to the ground and warmed down until he locked in that choke. And props to him; it was a very clean victory, uh, a very impressive victory too. To to get rid of someone like Corey Sandhagen out that quickly, and props to Aljamain Sterling. It's going to be very interesting to see where he falls in this title discussion. With Henry Cejudo, you know, retiring and giving up that vacant belt, so yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Now, like since since we're talking about bantamweight so much, let's just talk about how stacked the bantamweight division is because, oh my God, is it stacked? Like we have Marlon Moraes, um, um, Jose Aldo, Cody Garbrandt, Corey Sanhagen. Aljamain Sterling, Peter Jan, Pedro Munoz, and, and imagine if Henry Cejudo was still the champ. Like I just said, I mean, all the antics going on would be so crazy, but we, we don't have that anymore. But even, even then, in its own way, it's made the division even more insane because we don't know what's, what's up next. And like when you look at these top six or seven guys, I could see like any of them beating each other. Now, obviously, their are matchups. MMA is a is a sport of matchups, and I would make a prediction based on that probably. But like all of these guys are dangerous in different ways and can put you away in different ways, and that's what makes this division so interesting. I think the only division that that meets like the diversity of talent that that the bantamweight division puts out is like the lightweight division, and that's always been a really deep, division so it's saying something and i've always appreciated bantamweights too so i'm glad this much talent is coming out of this division they they have they've always had diverse styles and like they've and in terms of like stand-up like it's a great combination of of speed and power that's very entertaining to watch so i'm very happy about how the bantamweight division is finally getting its shine so yeah, let's 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 move on to um the main event, which was Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer. Now in terms of the fight, there's there's not much to say. Um Amanda Nunes is the GOAT of women's fighting, and like I there's no way to disprove that. There's no way to deny that she has beaten everybody who's coming her way, all time greats, and now Felicia Spencer. Now, let's give it up for Felicia Spencer. I know it's been said a bunch of times but she did put on a brave performance and th- there were times when i thought her corner was gonna throw in the towel but they knew her better than anyone else and they knew she can handle this and she went the full five rounds with the greatest female fighter of all time in the ufc and yeah that's that's no small feat i mean <laughs> chris cyborg didn't even last one round so that <laughs> That is an accomplishment to hang your hat on, even if you didn't pick up the win. Now, I think the real question coming out of this fight is, what's next for Amanda? Who's next for Amanda? And that's a tough question to answer because there, there really is no one left for Amanda. And the only thing I can say is, I think, I think it's going to be more of a Ronda Rousey and and um and an Anderson Silva situation when he had his reign. I think. Amanda is going to lift the talent level up to the point where new female fighters are going to have to come in and usurp her. And that's, that's easier said than done, but that, that is the trend in UFC history of when dominant champions, um, have these type of reigns and I don't know who's going to do it. Um, and we're just going to have to wait and see how Amanda's, legacy plays out and where it ends because it's got to end at some point now for an opponent right now like I can't see really anybody like I can't see anybody but if I had to choose like someone I would choose Valentina Shevchenko I think that's the the most like if, if we're looking at performance against Amanda Nunes I know the case against Valentina is that Amanda has beaten her and but it was a close fight and she is the only person who has put up that type of challenge against Amanda Nunez. So I think that would be the only direction to go. But like, I mean, Valentina having great s- success at 125 anyway, so I don't think she would make that leap to 125 or 145 if that's where Amanda is comfortable now so yeah it's a very confusing situation and we're just gonna have to see how how it all plays out now after this we're gonna get into the the contract disputes now but we're gonna start about the um uh, what I consider to be the the spark that started all of this and that is Conor McGregor announcing his retirement now Connor imagine this, like the UFC just puts on a great event, two amazing knockouts by by um, popular fighters, and then Amanda Nunes cementing her legacy as the greatest female fighter of all time, and it, it all gets washed away by Conor McGregor announcing his retirement. I mean, ESPN picks it up, um, Bleacher Report picks it up, every media outlet picks it up over what happened at UFC 250, and... Like, okay, so let's get into what Connor's problem is. Now, Connor's problem is that oh yeah, let, let's start with this. Um, Connor is not retiring. Um, Connor is <laughs> I'm sorry to anybody who thought Connor was retiring, but it, it, it's not happening. But I think the frustration there is real. And um, as Connor explained, he he wanted the Gaethje fight right away, but the UFC didn't want to do that. And, you know, Dana said that it's about, you know, um, Gaethje already earned the right to fight Khabib and that that's that. But I also think there is definitely an element of we don't want to waste a Conor McGregor gate during the pandemic. And like we, we, we could make so much more money if we have a full crowd and we can sell those tickets at a very high price. When Connor does fight, I think that's definitely an element in there. But this situation kind of like, you know, exasperated an already um volatile situation with um USC t- contract talks, and that that brings us to John Jones. John Jones is pretty much the second biggest star that um that um voiced concerns or or otherwise about like what's going on with USC contracts and not being treated fairly. Now, I think John Jones is doing this mostly for self-gain, if I have to be honest. I think he just wants a bigger payout versus Ngannou, but he does claim that he was mistreated and basically ripped off throughout his 20s by the UFC, and that could be legitimate. I don't know, And but I do think what he's saying is... Part of a per- a pervasive problem in the UFC, and I think that brings us to Jorge Masvidal, which I think who I think did the best at expressing how UFC contracts can really be abused, and how there is a need for for more presence and uh, observation of these UFC contracts. So he explained Jorge Masvidal that he was co- basically coerced into extending current contracts because. There was no way they they, the UFC wouldn't even acknowledge negotiations of these contracts. So basically he was told, okay, you extend it, you extend this contract or you can't fight here anymore. And and on top of that, he's saying that, okay, as long as I'm under the contract too, I can't fight anywhere else. Which is very weird to me because the UFC has always taken the stance of the fighters being independent contractors, and this kind of goes against it. But if what Jorge Masvidal is saying um, stands true, then yeah, this is this is an example of the UFC using um using their 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 weight, using their weight in this industry to their advantage, so they can just lock up fighters, and they can't do anything about it, and they have to sign. Contracts when they say they signed the contract, which is which is very weird, which is very concerning, too Now that brings us to Henry Cejudo boy all mentioned Henry Cejudo in the contract talks and I don't know I haven't seen anything to suggest like any concrete evidence to suggest that like He 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 wanted out he wanted to retire because of contract um, negotiations um it seemed very organic to me. I think Henry Cejudo did have a desire to to go out on top, but there's also the um the element of like well what actually I'll just say this straight up because like he Henry Cejudo did say he would consider coming back if there was a fight against Volkanovski open for him. So who is the current 145 ch- pound champ? So that's interesting. It says that he is willing to fight under the right circumstances, and maybe those circumstances, um, like you know, include how the contracts played out. And but there's no no hard evidence to suggest that, so it's really hard to make that claim. That's only speculation. Now, like, this isn't the first time the UFC has been um criticized or. Or been under fire for how they handle contracts now now that being said there is a bit of a caveat here um, most of these um, other situations have come about while Zufo was the owner but now WME owns but I, I don't see any real evidence to suggest especially based on the landscape surrounding contracts right now that this that the ownership change has affected How the UFC does business especially with fighters so I think these are these are um, you know worthy points to bring up Noteworthy points to bring up when we discuss how the UFC has kind of used contracts to their own benefit in the past Now before we get to that I wanted to talk about how the UFC splits revenue and how much revenue they make Because that's a big part of the equation in all of this so The UFC's yearly revenue has increased over the past decade, basically every year. And, you know, you got to take into account different revenue streams that have come up, like, you know, Fight Pass, ESPN Plus, video games. Those are just to name a few. Those are just a few examples out of easiness. And over the past five years, revenue has increased from about 500 million to 900 million yearly, nearing on a billion dollars per year. So almost so almost a four hundred million dollar gain over the past five years in yearly revenue. Now, that being said, the USC's revenue share between the athletes and the corporation has never changed. It, it, well, it, it was, but we'll get to that. Um, it's always been about 20 percent. And like, let, let's compare that to another league like the NFL, the NFL, um gives players 47% almost a 50-50 split of the revenue share made by the NFL. Now, like the only time the UFC has ever had that had a revenue share close to that is actually at the beginning of its inception. The first few years of the UFC, the um the fighter to um corporate split was actually 41% to the fighters. And and after those first few years, it just went to twenty and it never really changed. And I understand that if you're like a growing business, like you know, you have to um you need to lower the revenue share so you can you have more room to 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 get venues to to do other things. That's completely understandable. But now the USC was just sold for four billion dollars and is still increasing revenue and that revenue share hasn't changed ever, which is a little shady, but it's not it's not like mind blowing. or or mind-breaking. Now, this is where things get shady because the UFC owners, well, again, this was under Zufa, have taken out loans to pay themselves. And it's been speculated that UFC funds, you know, funds listed as used for UFC, like, you know, events and for for UFC, anything related to the UFC has been speculated due to um, analyzing accounting methods that, these, these funds have been used to buy luxuries for the owners. Now, I don't know how much weight that holds, but that's very serious if you're only paying 20, you know, you're only paying fighters 20% of the revenue. Meanwhile, you're taking out loans to pay yourself millions upon millions of dollars. Now, there's also been another way the UFC has used predatory contracts in the past and it's when they would buy other, you know, um, other fight fight institutions, you know so when they purchased Strike Force, which was an, a popular MMA um, league back in the day, they paid all the fighters in Strike Force a lesser amount so they would have to come to the UFC to get better contracts. Now, if there was a union in place, that probably wouldn't fly, but there is no union in place for MMA fighters, which is A big stemming issue from all of this so now if we're going to the UFC's antitrust hearings and to explain that a little bit um the UFC um was basically kind of held accountable for this years ago but I think it was back in 2015 when it really started and it, it was argued that you know they were the defense in this case, and they were part of an antitrust suit that basically said, okay, they're, they're locking up these fighters, which basically makes them a monopoly, because as long as they're buying all of these other, you know, fight leagues, and they're basically forcing fighters to come to their, to their you know, under their contracts, they're monopolizing the market, and no other, you know, fight league stands a, cha- stands a chance in their shadow. So that's the issue there. And this led to the UFC arguing that marginal revenue product, which is basically like, you know, the amount a fighter brings to the, or any famous person at an event brings to that event, and they're paid that subsequent amount of that share. So they said it was impossible to determine how much a fighter contributes to a card in revenue. But they also admitted in that same antitrust hearing that fighters of a higher rank in a division are more likely to draw more, which is kind of contradictory. You get what I'm saying, and that brings us to um the U- <laughs> to Dana White's first take appearance. And in Dana White's first take appearance, he says only four fighters are are mad at this, and you know that that like there's no need for a union. He was up against um well I shouldn't say up against. He was having a discussion with Dominique Foxworth. Who was on first take for that episode, and he has been a part of NFL unions in the past, and he 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 knows the union landscape well. Even though he, it was clear to me that Dominique Foxworth wasn't really um well versed about the USC and their business dealings. He did have an understand that something was awry here, and there is something awry. And like if if you know about the UFC's history you know that UFC contracts are particularly shady in, in general, in their wording. And UFC contracts, at least seven years ago, when, when this one leaked, there, there is a section in UFC contracts that prevents fighters from discussing how much they make um, and, and the, the length of the deal and things such as that. And it's basically up to the UFC to decide when that information becomes public and who knows about it. So this this could lead to many many fighters outside of those four fighters feeling um feeling like you know feeling like they need to get in Dana White's good graces or else they're going to be out of a job and like you know if if they don't play this game if they don't climb the ladder the way the UFC says then they're going to have no shot in general which is which is messed up in my opinion and like i guess you could argue this by saying like OK, then the UFC is just a full on merit based system where fighters, you know, if if you draw and, and the UFC recognizes it, then you will get paid. But the thing is, like you, you can see the inconsistencies in that argument with certain appearances. And I'm going to take the most recent appearance that comes to mind as the antidote as the anecdote for which I for which the point I'm presenting, which is. Sean O'Malley was paid 40k to show and 40k to win at UFC 250. And he spoke up about it after the um after the event. And he said, listen, I'm not gonna get like I, I wanna get paid more. I want to get paid what I'm deserved. And he probably is gonna get paid what he deserves because he has that drawing power and he has like all of that all of that clout now from being from being part of the Sugar Show for being Sean O'Malley. But the, th- the thing is like this doesn't go for every UFC fighter like UFC fighters can be exploited very easily under the current system. And especially with the wording of these contracts, considering that they they probably haven't changed since WME bought the UFC. So, yeah, there's no evidence to suggest that and the environment surrounding this and which fighters are speaking up. Kind of says that you need that clout in order to speak up in the first place and in order to, like, you know, in order for to make the UFC think about what it's doing publicly and how it's handling these situations. Now, what's my opinion on all of this? I think my opinion is that unions in MMA should be the bare minimum, but it's very clear that Dana White doesn't want unions for. For the reasons listed, like, you know, the unions being absent has benefited the UFC in the past, and it will probably continue to benefit the UFC in the future. But even boxing has unions, like even though boxers can can get paid like, you know, very small amounts of money under these unions. I think this should at least be the bare minimum, because it's not even the fact that UFC fighters get get paid so low. well it is part of that 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 is definitely part of that but it's also the fact that the UFC can just exploit these these like exploit fighters and exploit their own rules to to just do whatever benefits them at any time even if that comes at the at the expense of the well-being of fighters and other organizations that are trying to prosper so so that's the issue there. And I hope I did a good job at explaining why exactly the UFC needs to take certain measures and they need to be held accountable in certain areas. And yeah, that's that's about it for this episode. I mean, also um, UFC fight nights tonight. I hope um, I hope you're all excited for that. I'm excited for it. And maybe I'll write an article or do another podcast on that when it comes up. And yeah, it should be, it should be a solid event and I'm looking forward to it. So guys, I hope you like this episode. I did a lot of research for it. I, I, I hope you appreciate the information I put forward and I'll see you next time. Peace.